If you haven't played a video game since the Tetris days, or ever, you'd be very surprised how engrossing and how captivating they are now. The medium is unique in its ability to make people feel like we're part of a story rather than just watching a story. Video games shape identity in a way that's distinct from other pop culture. Games are an interactive medium like no other. There is nothing like a game. That's Sam Riedel, a writer who often covers video games. It's a piece of interactive art on a level like nothing else in our history has ever come close to. Games are special. I I really, really believe that. And the more we progress with them, I think the more lessons we can learn about ourselves and our identities, and the better a lot of us can become as people. Video games are also a huge industry. I think people who don't play games maybe think that they're like a weird, dorky niche that only a few people play. But that's exactly the opposite of true. Globally, video games are a $91 billion industry. 59% of Americans play video games. That's 186 million people. More Americans than have cable TV. We don't call someone a TVer or a movieer, but for some reason, playing video games still gets you pegged as a gamer. For Sam, playing video games as a teenager made her think differently about how she felt in the world. Sam is a transgender woman and looks back on making her first feminine video game avatars as a crucial experience in exploring her own gender identity. These days, Sam is a writer and editor. She wrote an excellent article for Bitch about the fragility of masculinity in gaming culture. The article is called No Girls Allowed and looks at the issues that led up to Gamergate in 2014. Gamergate was a harassment campaign that targeted outspoken feminist game developers and critics, including Zoe Quinn, Brianna Wu, and Anita Sarkeesian. When Gamergate reached its fever pitch three years ago, mobs of mostly men harassed them constantly, filling the Twitter and email inboxes of progressive video game fans, creators, and critics with virulent hate mail. The harassment spread into threats of rape and murder. Here's how Sam begins her article, No Girls Allowed. Most gamers knew the truth. There was a cancer at the center of our culture, a malignant growth of bitterness without direction and pain without cause. Many tried to mask or downplay its presence, even deny it outright, but the truth remained. Since the advent of gaming as we know it today, console video games, tabletop board and role-playing games, virtual reality, and so on, the surrounding subculture had been dominated by men who became its jealous gatekeepers. First to guard against childhood tormentors, bullies and the like, and over time simply to keep out those who were different. Most threatening of all were women, whose presence grew over time into a monolith of judgment and derision. They had no place in quote, gamer culture, until they did. Such was the scene in August 2014, when the cancer, eventually bearing the name Gamergate, finally metastasized. As the infamous movement's three-year anniversary approaches, it's time for gamers to ask, is this still who we are? So, Gamergate. I wish we didn't have to talk about it. I wish it didn't exist. And yet, it's a sad reality. So, we've got to discuss it. Yeah, you really have to talk about Gamergate. And it's not just because you know, it's, it's an important part of gaming history now. Um, the, the power structures that became really apparent in Gamergate also ended up fueling uh, the alt-right rise to power, sort of, so to speak, and uh, Donald Trump's election. You know, a lot of the same actors like uh, Milo Yiannopoulos and those people were active very, very vocally 
in Gamergate and then used those same uh, places online and those those same communities to galvanize support for uh, Trump and the and the Trump messaging, uh, whether ironically or seriously in, in the in the 2016 election. So if you want to talk about like socio-political issues in America from 2014 to 2016, and you're not talking about Gamergate, you're doing it wrong. So what's what's the connection between the alt-right and like neo-Nazi movements and people involved in Gamergate? So it's this uh, sense, of, I like to think of it as though Gamergate is sort of like a staging ground for a lot of the operations that we saw uh, online in the 2016 election. You know, you have all of these like very dedicated uh, keyboard warriors uh, going out there and uh, finding the people that are vulnerable to and quote unquote deserving of harassment, um, you know, sending dozens and dozens and dozens of faceless accounts to just bombard that person with with hate and vitriol um, and uh, and attacks that are specifically calculated to like uh, make this person so uncomfortable and so upset that they're just going to maybe like leave Twitter or like leave the internet uh, for a week, a month, whatever. Um, you know, make people feel afraid, you know, make people feel as though, you know, there's this overwhelming, like, we don't know how many people there are out there, you know, we're, we're not safe, like, they're, they're, they're coming. Um, those are the sorts of uh, harassment operations that we saw uh, happen online in the 2016 election. Well, so let's, let's back up for some history. And I want to talk about the history of both sexism in video games and in the communities around video games. So can you talk a little bit about video games coming on the scene in the late 1980s and like whether sexism was apparent then or whether the dynamic is new and totally different today with the advent of the internet? Yeah, it's definitely nothing new. Um, this has been something that video games as an art form have really struggled with since the early 80s when... Um, we were just getting these first innovations in arcade games. All the way back in uh, 1982, actually, uh, a sociologist named Sidney... Let's get another take. Um, in, all the way back in 1982, uh, a sociologist named Sidney Kaplan uh, wrote a study uh, called The Image of amusement arcades and differences in male and female video game playing. Um, and he basically found that people that go to arcades and play video games there uh, were like, eight out of 10 of them were men. Um, so the first places that you could go to play these new things called video games, really, um, if you weren't like part of the elite and had a computer, uh, uh, the first places that you could play video games were overwhelmingly male-dominated, and they just weren't inviting to women. And this continued uh, throughout the 80s um, until you start to see the first home entertainment systems. Um, Nintendo also puts out their first handheld gaming system in 1989, 
and it's called The Game Boy. Um, and I, I really like to look back at, at that naming as just so indicative of the, the baseness of the problem. Um, you know, there would not, in 1989, there would not have been a single person in the room that thought of calling anything a game girl. Like, <laughs> that would not have been a thing. Um, but as these, as the uh, home entertainment systems, as, as home gaming systems become more and more prevalent, we see games that start to feature more female characters that aren't named Ms. Pac-Man. Um, and we, and we start to, and like more power to, uh, Toru Iwatani who, who created Pac-Man and like made a, a targeted effort to try and get women into games. But, um, for a long time, a little yellow circle was all that we had. Um, but in the nineties, you know, we, uh, with, uh, games like Metroid and Tomb Raider, you know, we start to we start to see things shifting, but it's a long road. So what's what's Metroid? Let's talk about Metroid first. Let's please let's talk about Metroid. Um, Metroid is a a platformer game. You know, if you've ever played Mario, uh, that's the sort of game you you jump around uh, on different leveled platforms, uh, try to avoid or kill enemies, uh, get some loot, uh, get as many points as you can and complete your objective. Um, Metroid is significant, uh, not f necessarily for its plot line, which is just, you know, you're a bounty hunter, you're going around in space, you're fighting uh, brain-sucking brain monsters. Y yes, the monsters are brains that also want to suck your brains. <laughs> uh, but it's it's significant because of the the twist ending at the end of the first Metroid game. Uh, you, the player, you know, beat Mother Brain, and uh, you know you're you're celebrating. I just beat it. Fantastic, awesome. And then your hero, Samus Aran, takes off uh, her armor and reveals that she's been a woman the whole time. Uh, so without you know saying anything about it. Uh, it, anywhere in the game, up until its closing moments, you know, uh, gamers find out, oh, I've been playing as a girl this whole time, which is a monumental feat, really, in terms of like interactive storytelling. So, but at at the same time as you have this, like, oh, th this this is huge, um, this ending. There's also, if you manage to score enough points and just do so well uh, in in the game past a certain benchmark, uh, Samus will actually not just strip off her armor, but strip off her clothes as well, and she's wearing either her underwear or a bikini or something um, underneath it all. Yeah, on the one hand, you get to play as this awesome character who's a woman. On the other hand, you're rewarded with her wearing an 8-bit bikini. And there's like no thought given to, isn't this undermining her character and also making huge, assu huge assumptions about who's playing this game, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And, I, and, it's, and it doesn't make it better that at the time 
you know, those assumptions were like largely correct. I, I think the video game that most people would know from this era is probably Tomb Raider starring Lara Croft, who's a really similar dynamic. She's she's this um, complex, tough, smart character who gets to do all kinds of exciting things. But on the flip side, the game lingers on shots of her disproportionately giant boobs. <laughs> right. And the, oh God, that story about why her boobs are so big is so funny to me um, because it's really uh, Toby Gard, uh, one of her creators, uh, while they were making the, the character models for uh, Lara Croft, sort of accidentally increased her bust uh, by like 150%. <laughs> and just kind of like uh, thought it was a funny mistake. And then the rest of the development team seriously bought into it and said, oh, that's a good idea. Let's do that. History doesn't interest me. Well, then why don't you stay here and consider the future? Make sure I'm not in it, however. You won't enjoy seeing me again. The, uh, the marketing for those games is so dramatically sexualized and plays up, you know, uh, yeah, you're, you're playing as a woman, but it's okay because she's hot and look at her butt. Yeah. I I want to change gears a little bit and ask about your history playing video games. Um, do you remember the first time you made a character in a video game? And what was that process like for you from an identity standpoint? Yeah. In particular, I was really drawn to role-playing games and games where you could to some extent, customize your character. And I think the first one that I had was um, the second Baldur's Gate game, uh, Shadows of Am. And at that time, I was still very young, and I hadn't figured out that I was trans yet by a long shot. Um, but there was something about, you know, creating uh, this character who, who was a boy um, and, you know, customizing everything. Um, that really spoke to me and uh, gave me a sense of freedom that I knew I really wanted uh, and, and was <laughs> excited to explore in, in Baldur's Gate and in subsequent games. Um, I, rem I think I remember the first uh, serious female character that I rolled up was in uh, Knights of the Old Republic, which is a, a Star Wars uh, video game. And I, I made myself a, a, a real mean looking, uh, Sith girl <laughs> that, that, uh, ran around, uh, all the planets and killed everything and made very good friends with a homicidal droid. Uh, and, you know, just like gave no shits. <laughs> I feel like that's. Um, I feel like that's that's the real you is like a mean looking Sith girl. <laughs> you know, yeah, just screaming, <laughs> screaming to get out. Uh, just where is my lightsaber? What have you done with it? Um, um, yeah, there's and so like really through games, I um, games were a big way for me to seek out sort of like um, embodiment in the way that part of me knew that I needed, but my conscious brain just wasn't capable of coming up with that 
on its own. Obviously, games are very special to many, many people. Like, how do you feel like playing video games has shaped your identity? Why is this something that's close to your heart? Um, well, you know, when I was coming out um, as trans uh, back in 2015, I would often kind of like take a load off and play a game called uh, Saints Row 4. And it's this ridiculous, over-the-top, hyperbole upon hyperbole, first-person, or not first-person, uh, third-person shooter, um, because uh, Saints Row has such an elaborate system of character customization. You know, I was able to create a character who was a woman, but a woman that I could be. And it sort of gave me almost an aspirational model to, for, for existence as a, as a woman. And if not an aspirational model, then at least one that I could wrap myself into and have this sort of power fantasy that didn't rely on me being a man or being perceived as a man. You know, being very obviously a woman and also toting around a, a pair of submachine guns with pink and purple polka dots on them. Um, I really, you know, the early stages of coming out were really difficult for me. And having that avatar to retreat into and to draw strength from in some ways was really important for me and not an insignificant uh, factor in gaining a certain amount of empowerment for myself that I, that I didn't know if I could grab. That was Sam Riedel. You can read her article, No Girls Allowed, at bitchmedia.org. Coming up, war games and what the hell the U.S. military has to do with video games. 